Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So, as lovers of the outdoors, we live in and travel to certain places because of their natural beauty and for the chance to get out in nature and get away from it all. And yet, some of the places we go, and often these are mountain towns, well, they have rich histories of art and have thriving art institutions. So what's going on here and what's the history here? What role do these art institutions play? And perhaps the biggest question here is, why do we need centers of art in mountain towns and in these places of staggering natural beauty? I truly believe that these are topics and questions that any of us who live in or who visit mountain towns ought to better understand And perhaps especially if you are someone who hasn't typically sought out the art programs and events being put on in the mountain towns you frequent. And to help us get a handle on these questions, I was in Sun Valley, Idaho last week to sit down with Courtney Gilbert, who is the curator of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. Courtney is great. The team at the Sun Valley Museum of Art is terrific, And in this conversation, not only does Courtney provide a great perspective on the questions that I've raised here in the introduction, but she also gives a great overview of the history of the arts in Sun Valley, the current work of the Sun Valley Museum of Art, and we talk about the Sun Valley Wine Auction, which is a remarkable event put on by the Museum of Art to raise scholarship funds and to support a very broad range of arts in and around Sun Valley and beyond. And so let's talk about art and the outdoors and mountain towns with Courtney Gilbert. Here we go. Well, I'm very happy to be here at the Sun Valley Museum of Art with Courtney Gilbert. Courtney, we're going to get into it right from the jump with what I think is a pretty significant and kind of fundamental question to kick off this entire conversation. Mm -hmm. And that question is, in a place of such natural beauty, like Sun Valley and the Wood River Valley, a a place like Crested Butte, there's a number of these places. They're often mountain towns. Mm -hmm. Why do we need centers of art in these places of such natural beauty. Well, thank first, Jonathan, thank you for having me here. I'm really um, grateful to be talking to you. And I think that's a fantastic question. And it's one um, that I think we've tried to answer in a lot of different ways over the years that I've been here. Um, we used to talk about the fact that, that people who um, love to exercise their bodies also love to or should love to exercise their brains and exercise their minds and their spirits and um, that the arts are one of the best ways for them to be able to do that. Um, But I also think one of the things I've noticed over the years that I've been here is that um, people who 
people who spend time in places like Sun Valley or Crested Butte or Jackson Hole, they have a deep connection to nature and to the beauty in nature. And I think that that tends to lead people to the arts as well, that they already are sort of connected to art in a way that they might not even understand. And I've, I mean, a lot of people have told me that when they were choosing a place to live that was different, say, than a big city, they looked for places that had a rich cultural community and um, and that this was one of the towns that stood out because they did want to have the same kind of cultural opportunities that they have in the outdoors, the same caliber of cultural experience. Yeah. Yeah. And as somebody who has lived in mountain towns yeah. for quite some time now, you know, as I reflect on this question, because it's definitely one I've asked myself yeah. as somebody who is a bit more on the, like, you know, I'm so happy to be here for the trails yeah. and for the snow. Yeah. But for people particularly, I think about growing up mm-hmm. in these places, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a mountain town. And so I had my institutions of art around in plenty. Yeah. So thinking of, it's one thing to think about people coming to these places. Yeah. It's another thing to think about the people growing up in these places yeah. and to not have those opportunities or or to be able to provide these opportunities in addition to all of the incredible outdoor opportunities and access. That's yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we do a lot of work um, with our local schools. We serve every kid in the school district, which is about 4,000 kids at least once during the year and, and, and lots of them many times. Um, and for probably, you know, well over half of those kids, we might be their only museum experience during their school years because um, their families may not travel to places with museums. Um, It might not be a priority for them, for their families. Um, And so, yeah, we're really, I do, I mean, there's nothing that makes me happier than when we get a group of kids for a school tour and and our educators say, have any of you been here before? And all these little hands go up and they remember shows from years and years before. Um, and I, I love to see that they carry that impact with them. But I, I was thinking about another, another thing that just struck me about your original question is that when I think about some of my favorite artists, um, they have an innate love of the natural world that informs their work. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I, I feel like the two are so deeply connected for so many, not just people who um, love the outdoors and love the arts, but also for artists too, for people who create, that the natural world is sort of essential to um, who they are and how they express themselves. So that is clearly true. Yeah. I mean, so many songwriters, yeah. visual artists, novelists, mm-hmm. etc. cetera, we don't need to make this point. It's too yeah. well established, right? Yeah. That that connection with the outdoor world, the inspiration they derive from it. But that is still a little bit of a different question than creating mm-hmm. museums, yeah. galleries. Yeah. And so I think we've already touched on this in terms of an answer, but the connection between n- the inspiration of the natural world oh. and 
and art yeah. is solidified. Yeah. But creating these centers. Right. And by the way, you know, if we look at the art that is currently on display mm-hmm. at the Sun Valley Museum of Art, it isn't just landscape paintings, right? right? No, We're not just not. doing yeah. representations. Right. We're not doing artistic representations of the natural world. It's right. it's all over. Yeah. So is the is the answer that we've already given, is it sufficient or is there more to say about this that, okay, but let's think about the kids living here, yeah. the people that live here, by not merely having landscape paintings of the mountain right. ranges that they can look out right. at, at the, out right. their window, I think we can already understand why we would want to bring in more artwork beyond just natural yeah. representations. Yeah. But how, what else would you yeah. have to say to that in yeah. terms of a... Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, um, every exhibition... The exhibition we have up right now is a little bit unusual because it's all um, sort of uh, important artworks from local collections. And so while there are a number of different themes within the exhibition, there isn't an overarching theme. And and almost every other exhibition that I curate has has a theme or a question at its heart, an idea. Um, And sometimes those ideas don't necessarily seem to have anything to do with the arts. so, you know, we did a whole project about the brain, for instance, and, and the way that artists are using kind of uh, recent advances in brain science as inspiration for making new work, mm-hmm. things like So I did a show about astronomy, which really makes sense living in a dark sky area. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think one of the things that we really try to do is present people with, with ideas that they may already be interested in or may not be and give them a lot of different ways to think about it and ask questions and learn. Um, so we try to we try to be a place where people of all ages can have a, a kind of rich educational experience as well as an aesthetic experience. And and then on you know in on top of that, I think that all museums wherever they are are places that build community. And that has to be an important goal, especially in a small town, that you you become a gathering place um, and uh, that people can have shared experiences, shared either educational experiences or just um, experiences of joy mm-hmm. <laughs> together. We do we do evening exhibition tours for um, for all our shows at least once a month, and it's always like it's just such a joy to see the. Um, the people who come because we'll get, it's often a mix. It'll be tourists who just read about it in the newspaper and are totally new to the area and just kind of stumble in. And then we have regulars who come for every tour and really participate in the conversation. Um, and it's a nice opportunity to kind of bring people together in community and in conversation around an idea and, and explore it together. Hmm. And so just to make the point maybe explicit there, yeah. the the key or one of the keys about these evening mm-hmm. gatherings is that for yeah. people who are working jobs yeah. during normal museum yeah. hours, they yeah. can still come see right. this, come together as a community. Is yeah. that? Yeah, we, we start them at 5.30 to give people a chance to get there after work. Um, we also have started um, a series of evening events for a group we call the Contemporaries, who are younger members of the museum, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, sometimes older. <laughs> it's more um, of a state, yeah, of, it's, state yeah, of mind. State of mind. How, however young you feel, you're welcome to join mm-hmm. us. Um, 
And those are include a tour of the exhibition, but also we often do a making activity that um, sometimes, you know, brings people back to some of the making activities of their youth um, and are really fun and um, just a nice chance for people to, yeah, get together, think about art, make art, talk about art. Hmm. Yeah. And those are also free. So, yeah, we try to do as much, we try to offer as many of our programs free of charge as we can. And there are a lot of other organizations in the Valley, like the Community Library, all their lectures are free and they bring, you know, just amazing um, authors and experts in their field to give talks to anybody who's interested, which is, we're pretty lucky to live in a place like that where um, we have support that allows us to, to present low cost and no cost programming. And a lot of it and like at a wildly high caliber. Yeah. It's kind of shocking. Yeah. Actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I think about the writers conference, which yeah. is, it's very, it's, it's not inexpensive to attend, but they have begun making, um, a number of their pavilion talks available to the public for free. If you want to sit on the lawn and yep. watch on this really high quality jumbo screen, you can see some of the top thinkers in the world and yep. it's extraordinary. I have done exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. I've done exactly that. Sat on the lawn yeah. and, um, it, it's just, I, I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. Um, in a place that, you know, for most of my life, I just thought of like, that's where you go ski and ride bikes. Yeah. It's like, well, you can do that. And it's amazing. And now you're yeah. also able to do this. And now you can hear from a Pulitzer Prize winning author that's right. yeah, or yep. journalist or yeah. 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 Or a um, former secretary of state. Yeah. <laughs> or, or that. <laughs> Let's talk about you. Okay. This is a topic. I'm just, I'm going to try to exercise restraint and you're going to hear why folks in just a second. I learned this as I came in this morning and you said, well, I think first you were like, Hey, nice to see you. <laughs> and then you're like, I just found out that you have a university of Chicago background. Uh huh. And you said, I also went to university of Chicago for graduate school. And so we share a special, um, sort of uh, challenging experience together. We've both been through the University of Chicago ringer. Mm -hmm. And we were there the same yeah, time. we were. Um, but we didn't know each other. We did not know each other. Because I was the idea of taking a philosophy class was absolutely <laughs> terrifying to me. I rarely ventured out of my department. And when I did, I stayed close and safe. So I think I have this right. Dartmouth undergrad. Yeah. yeah. What led you to go from Dartmouth to U of C? So I graduated from college totally in love with art history. I had worked as an intern in different museums um, while I was in college. And I, I thought that I would either, um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to teach or if I wanted to work in a museum, but I knew I wanted to keep studying art history. So I, um, I actually, I actually, I took a kind of circuitous path. It was only one year before graduate school, but one of the things I did was I worked at a school. This this connects to more to why I'm here now, but I worked at a school in in Zermatt, Switzerland, which for it's just a one semester program for American 10th graders called Swiss Semester. Huh. And we um did classes in the morning and then we skied and hiked in the afternoons. So it was this like extraordinary experience, but one of the 
people who was teaching on that program was somebody who had been a professor of mine. His name was Bob McGrath. He taught American art, and I had been a research assistant for him, actually. Um, and he had a sabbatical year, and so he went and taught art history um, on this program. And so these 10th graders were having, you know, this extraordinary art history education. And while we were there, he really encouraged me to, to get going and apply to graduate schools because he knew that I, um, how much I enjoyed it. And, and he thought that I would, you know, really enjoy the experience of graduate school. He, of course, had written his dissertation in like, you know, three years, master's in, he had a totally <laughs> different experience yeah. than I did, right? Like a lot had changed. <laughs> um, so I did, I applied that winter and, um, I applied kind of to schools all over, but I grew up in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I was excited about the idea of being um, near my family, but not necessarily. I almost, I thought about University of Michigan, mm -hmm. um, but in the end, Chicago seemed like a really good fit. I mean, it was such an intellectually rigorous and dynamic yeah. place. I had no idea how intellectually rigorous <laughs> until I got there. Um, but it, you know, just the access to the museums in Chicago and yeah. being on the lake and... Um, yeah, it was really, it was a great city to live in. Yeah. At that point. And so I, I came out of graduate school and I still, um, I was living in Austin when I finished my dissertation and I taught part-time at Texas State University in San Marcos. And I worked part-time in the Latin American department at the Blanton Museum at University of Texas. And I kind of had this moment where I sort of needed to make a decision about which direction I wanted to go in. And I, really loved working with objects and I really loved working with living artists, which was not something I had studied in graduate school. I mean, a few of the artists I studied were still alive, but not many. So um, I kind of veered toward um, to, more towards museum work. And then I had been visiting Sun Valley for a while and a lot of my friends from, not a lot, but several friends from college had moved here. Um, and I loved the center. We were then, Sun Valley Museum of Art used to be Sun Valley Center for the Arts. Mm -hmm. And I followed everything they did and a job opened up as a curator and I applied and my reluctant husband <laughs> agreed to join me and we moved here, yeah, 17 years ago. 17 years yeah, ago. Yeah. And I've been so happy. Um, it's, it's like, it's this place where I can do work that I can work with artists from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. Yeah. I have a lot of freedom in terms of programming and um, exhibition ideas. And um, it's it's small. Our space is really small, but we're, we're pretty um, nimble and flexible. And um, so I, it's really a rewarding place to work hmm. for me personally. Hmm. Yeah, and I have great colleagues. And now your title is... Well, it's curator. Okay. You, <laughs> it was, 17 years, yeah, no, yeah, no, no promotions. <laughs> well, we, it was going to be chief curator, um, but we, and we were going <laughs> to... Uh, it was chief curator, but then I devoted myself to curator <laughs> because w there were no other curators. We do have a curatorial assistant who's fantastic. Oh. But um, if we have an assistant curator, I will, I guess, promote myself back to chief curator. But it felt like... Maybe I'm just the curator, so okay. I love it. So yeah, now I guess we're just getting into like weird org chart conversations. But I think I think of you as the museum director. 
Is that accurate? Is that somebody else? What, what helped yeah. me? No, that is a really good question. We have an executive director, Jennifer Wells Green, who came here from LA. She was actually the deputy director at the Hammer Museum at UCLA, which is like one of the best contemporary art museums, you know, certainly on the West Coast, but probably in the United States. And um, then she worked at the School of Arts and Architecture at UCLA for um, probably a decade in um, administration there. And she's fantastic. She's really the person who envisioned and guided our whole remodel. Um, and before Jennifer came, we had a dual leadership model with an executive director and an artistic director. Kristen Poole was our artistic director for 25 years. She retired last year. Um, and she she was also the acting executive director uh, for a year before she left. And she really has, she's guided the programming at the institution and also um, a lot of the administration. She just de facto guided over the years and is really responsible for much of what we've accomplished in the hmm. last couple of decades. Yeah. So I work for the executive director. But as curator, this yeah. means maybe you don't have to put all your time and energy into things like major remodelings of the actual space. Right. You get to stay sort of focused on yeah. the actual art coming in yeah. and the shows and the themes yeah. and all that. Is that yeah. right? I'd, yeah. I'd rather have your job. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, bless, yeah, definitely. God bless everybody that can handle the remodels. Yeah, but. yeah I, I love my job. <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm not interested so much in the spreadsheet side of um, running a museum, hmm. but there are people who are really good at that, which is good. Um, yeah, and we do a lot of commission projects. So we bring artists here. Huh. They come usually for a site visit, um, maybe a year in advance of an exhibition, and then go away and think about an idea and then make work for an exhibition. But we're not collecting, so they take the work back with them. But huh. we, yeah, we pay them a fee. And um, yeah, it's really, that's one of the best parts of my job is bringing people here um, who might not ever have been to Idaho before. Mm -hmm and introducing them to this place and to the history and um, the landscapes and then inviting them to respond. So that has been super rewarding. And that's resulted in some really huge um, kind of permanent projects like the, I don't know if you've seen the sculpture just south of Serenade Lane, just south of the turn to, um, to Baldy that looks, a lot of people think it looks like a dinosaur or a whale. Yeah, it's actually modeled after a lava tube. And an artist named John Grady made that um, as part of a, the a centennial celebration for the National Park Service because we worked with Craters of the Moon National Monument. So he mapped, used LIDAR to map the interior of a lava tube and then reproduced it in wood. Yeah, so that was like sort of the biggest project we've done. But um, yeah, just for almost every exhibition includes a commissioned project. Huh. Yeah. Let's talk more about the history yeah. of art in Sun Valley. Yeah. So Sun Valley was founded in 1936, and Averill Harriman, the owner of Union Pacific Railroad, was the founder. Um, I think that one of the reasons he built the resort was um, that it was at a time when train travel was kind of falling off in numbers. And so he built the resort at the end of a Union Pacific spur line in order to drive more traffic on the trains. There was an overnight train from LA that had 
I mean, I think according to legend, it had like three bar cars and two dance floors. Wow. And people would wow. get on and 24, you know, 24 hours later, they'd be in Sun Valley. Um, the Snowball Express, it was called. That's amazing. So one of his um, marketing ideas was to bring movie stars here when the resort opened. So through the 1930s and 40s, it was definitely a film destination. Um, lots of filmmakers, actors, actresses, um, directors would come here for vacation. The lodge is filled with, you know, fabulous photos of like Ingrid Bergman and Gary Cooper on mm. long wooden skis. And um, so that like the, the film world has been connected to Sun Valley since the beginning of the resort. Um, the, the arts in terms of visual arts, performing arts have not been were not as strongly connected to this place until the 1970s. The resort was purchased um, by a man named Bill Jans in, I think, the late 1960s. And he really believed that it was important to, um, to have some kind of cultural life here in addition to the recreational activities. And so he invited a woman named Glenn Cooper, who actually later, she later married Bill Jans after his wife um, passed away and she became Glenn Jans. They, they were friends from LA and he, she had been very involved with LACMA. He asked her if she'd be interested in helping to start an art center hmm. in, um, I think about 1970. Hmm. And she said, no, she really was here to ski and she wanted to take advantage of that. And then she broke her leg <laughs> and wow. her first winter here. So she thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, think about getting something started. So we were incorporated in 1971. Um, we turned 50 a couple of years ago. And the original model for the organization was much more of a teaching institution, um, master artists, photographers, um, primarily photographers, ceramic artists, and printmakers but also painters, came from all over the country. And most of the classes were given in the summer. Students who, um, who were interested in expanding their skills in a particular area. So generally, people working towards a professional art career would come spend the summer, take workshops. Um, eventually, a little gallery called the Potato Gallery started yeah. as a place to sell work by students and by faculty. Um, I mean, with some amazing people passed through this place. Um, Paul Soldner, the ceramic artist, taught here. The program was run by a guy named Jim Romberg, who's a great ceramic artist. The photography department had people like um, Peter DeLore, um, Mark Klett, Ellen Manchester, you know, teaching and running programs. Um, Frederick Summer came and taught. Tina Barney got her start here. Hmm. She moved here in the 70s in 74 and began taking classes and now is, you know, one of the best known American photographers. So um, it was a really different model. The campus was where the community school is now. So there were different buildings, ceramics building, um, graphic arts and painting, photography. And um, as we planned for our 50th anniversary, we started going through old photographs and slides and getting everything digitized. And it's just, it just seems like it was this magical hmm. time. People had a lot of fun. A lot of pe photos of people in hot tubs <laughs> <Everyone>. <laughs> after classes. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It brought back. I I was a child during that period, but I have some of the same memories <laughs> from my parents and their friends. Yeah. So that was um, a very a different model, but the gallery. Um, you know, was a successful space. And then over the years, the, we still do classes, but not, it became really hard for people to come for a whole summer yeah. and to find housing, mm-hmm. frankly, which is an ongoing mm-hmm. issue, as you know, in, and is in every mountain town right now and, and lots of other places. Um, so yeah, the model shifted more towards an exhibiting organization and um, with a really strong pu- public programs component and summer concerts and winter music and you know it's evolved a lot throughout the years but it's um the mission of like bringing people together through the arts has remained fundamental Mm -hmm. i've got to ask you Mm -hmm. we've gone almost half an hour into a conversation about art and sun valley yeah and we've not mentioned the name ernest hemingway oh yeah or ezra pound or ezra pound (laughs) right Talk a little bit. I don't. I don't know that history in terms mm-hmm. of Ezra Pound Hemingway in terms of a connection with the museum or mm-hmm. the, the Center for the Arts yeah. here. If they were kind of doing their own thing independently, but I mean, you yeah. you can't come to catch them and and right. kind of not yeah. get a sense of the Hemingway yeah. presence or, or yeah. imprint. Right. Thoughts on this. So, well, Ezra Pound was born in Haley in 1886, I think. So he he obviously was, he was not involved with the Sun Valley Center for the Arts, yeah. but he did live in Haley um, the first two years of his life. And he was born in a house that his father had, had built the year before. Um, his father was like a registrar of mines, I think. Um, and that house is now the property of the Sun Valley Museum of Art, actually. Mm-hmm. So we use it as an artist residence mm-hmm. for visiting artists. And we have a classroom on that site, too, That's where we cool. do a lot of our studio classes. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. I mean, he was a super um, controversial figure. And yep. and obviously, um, it's a it's a very... Um, his history is a, is a difficult one. But the house itself is an enormous gift and and one that we are grateful to have. And... And, you know, have enjoyed, artists always enjoy it. It's um, full of wallpaper, arts and crafts era wallpaper, even on the ceilings. Hmm. (laughs) Um, And then Hemingway, I think he started visiting here in the 1930s. And if I'm remembering the history right, he finished the book For Whom the Bell Tolls in the Sun Valley Lodge. There's a room that they honor as the Hemingway room where he finished writing that. He continued visiting over the years. In the 1950s, he purchased a home on the outskirts of Ketchum that's on a river. It's a really beautiful piece of property um, with gorgeous views. And the home itself is interesting because it was modeled. He, he didn't build it. He, I think he was the second owner, but it was modeled on the Sun Valley Lodge, which is actually, it looks like wood, but it's concrete that's been painted to look like wood. And so is this house. So it's sort of a mini Sun Valley Lodge. Um, and he lived there with his his last wife, Mary, um, until he, he actually killed himself at the house. Um, and I'm, I can't remember what year he died, but that was also before the founding of the center. So he he wasn't involved in the history of the center, but he... 
you know, certainly was a presence in town. I mean, a lot of people knew him and um, some people who are still residents here knew him. Mary lived here into the 1980s and she was also very, you know, quite a character and really well-known um, and active in the community. Um, and that house now it is, it was um, owned by the Nature Conservancy, which used it for offices for quite a while. Um, Hemingway's son, Jack, was an ardent fisherman and um, was one of the people who helped protect Silver Creek Fishing Preserve, hmm. or Silver Creek Preserve, which is a you know world-class destination for fly fishing, and the Nature Conservancy manages Silver Creek. And so I think that he, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that he was responsible for giving the house to the Nature Conservancy. And then in turn, they eventually gave it to um, the community library, which is now running their own residency program there. They did a beautiful job. The, the main floor and the upstairs of the house are untouched. They look, I mean, as if Ernest and Mary could have just stepped out for the day. There's, you know, this fantastic yellow formica kitchen and this kind of Kool-Aid colored carpeting and mauve walls. Um, it's, it's like nothing, you know, the stylistically, it's like very much mid-century um, in a really wonderful way, turquoise bathrooms. And, um, but the lower level, which was originally garages, has been turned into this beautiful residence. And so the um, community library brings writers to spend time there and do hmm. residency projects. Hmm. It's just interesting when we, I mean, first of all, you've talked so much about different types of art, different mediums. Uh -huh. You've named a number of artists, maybe none of them as famous uh -huh. as a Hemingway. Uh -huh. But I also think it's interesting in certain places when we do get figures that are just tethered to that yeah. place. So in New Mexico, George O'Keefe. Yes. Right? And we have this at times. And what I find fascinating is sometimes there are places that are tied to a prominent artist, mm -hmm. but there's not that much going on today mm -hmm. in those places. There's mm -hmm. not, there's not an energy. There's, there's not a continuation. And, um, and then sometimes there is. Mm -hmm. And I think that what is certainly true here to like a remarkable degree mm -hmm. is how active this community is. And again, you've already spoken to this really well, but in so many ways that I continue to learn mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh, in so many different mediums. And I think that is really cool. So we have certain uh, prominent, high profile, historical ties, mm -hmm. but this is by no means a community or a museum that's kind of resting on those mm -hmm resting on history. Yeah. It's creating. Yeah. Actively. Yeah. Right? And yeah, I mean, I definitely think, um, one of the things that Jennifer has really tried to clarify for us as an organization is that we're, we're a contemporary arts organization and the current show we have up does include a Georgia O'Keeffe, for mm -hmm. instance, and, and work by a lot of other 20th century artists, but, um, really going forward, I've, I've always felt that an important part of my mission is to bring work to this valley by artists people don't know and expose them to new artists and also to give young artists opportunities 
to um, share their work with the world and or to make new work that they wouldn't otherwise be able to make. And so, um, and I think that the community library has, for instance, that same mission. They bring really well-known writers and then they bring writers who are just kind of getting their start. And and this might be the place where they write there for whom the bell tolls, you know? It's, That's right. Yeah. So having a living, breathing community is really important. And then, of course, we have a super active arts community in terms of artists, visual artists. There are a lot of visual artists here. Um, you know, naturally, there are a lot of artists who are very focused on the idea of landscape being in this place. Um, but then there are other artists like uh, an artist named Pamela DeTunk who are, who are doing more conceptual work. Um, so there's quite a, a range. And they have developed a whole weekend of artist studio tours that happens in August. And it's this great opportunity to see what people are working on and you can ride your bike all over the all over the county if you want or drive <laughs> and check out, you know, what these artists are making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wide range of mediums and, um, and, and there's a writer's community too. Yeah. And there are also famous writers like Judith Freeman yeah. who, um, and, and her, uh, Anthony Hernandez, the photographer, somebody who's had, you know, a, a retrospective at SF MoMA who live here now most of the year mm -hmm. or nearby Fairfield. This might be a good time to talk about the Sun Valley Wine Auction. Oh, yeah. Do you want to say it's going yeah. on right yeah. now, right which now. is why I'm sensitive yeah. of how much of yeah. your time I am currently taking. Oh. <laughs> uh, but I'm doing treat. it anyway. Yeah, well, it's a treat to be here, you know, talking to you rather than <laughs> schlepping things around. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so this is a little reprieve. My, hopefully my colleagues won't listen. <laughs> okay, so. you, this is good. Yeah. You can just blame me. Like, this guy would not stop. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but but talk a bit more yeah. about this. I, it's a remarkable event. Um, this is. is my third in a row uh, to yeah. be to be out at, and I, as I see and learn more about how this all works, kind of the more impressed I am. Yeah. Uh, but but talk a bit about it and yeah. maybe some of its history and sure. what it does. Yeah. So the wine auction, the first Sun Valley wine auction was in 1981, 42 years ago, 43 years ago, and. Um, Glenn Jans, our founder, the whole event was her idea, and she was the person who who pulled it together that first time. Glenn was good friends with Molly Chapelet, whose family Chap owns Chapelet Winery, which is you know like one of the storied, most esteemed wineries in Napa Valley. Um, and they, uh, Molly had invited Glenn to attend the Napa Valley Wine Auction, and when she did, she thought. I think we could do something like that in Sun Valley when she saw how much it raised and how effective it was. So the story I've always heard is that the first few years really consisted of board members digging in. A lot of our board members were wine collectors and they'd dig into their own cellars. And then, you know, a few wineries would come and donate wine and people would sort of sell wine, basically auction wine off to each other, you know, <laughs> um, and then it just started growing from there. And it, it became a, a huge event in the industry. I think we're in the top 10 for wine auctions. Huh. Um, we're now the oldest continuously running wine auction in the country. And we have support from, um, from wineries in you know Napa Valley, Sonoma, Paso Robles, um, the Pacific Northwest, Columbia River Valley, Walla Walla, um, Washington State. It's um, just an amazing 
uh, group of wineries who come together to support us. We've and international vintners as well. And so uh, the winemakers come and host winemaker dinners and um, share their wines at the main event, the auction, which this year we're combining with our pig roast. And um, and then there's a River Ranch Wine Walk, which is a relatively new event. Three, three or four homes along the Big Wood River open up their backyards to about um, just over 20 wineries that's each set up different stations and people can wander through the gardens and um, taste wine and have food. And it's just a, a lovely way to wrap up the whole event. Um, very low key and, and really um, pleasant, you know, being in the trees and it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's you know, and and now I think originally the the wine auction was strictly a wine auction. People bought wine, but now wines are often bundled with trips and with yeah. visits to different wineries, and yeah. yeah, yeah, lots of different kinds of opportunities. Yeah, and speaking of vintner dinners, I had a truly unique experience. Yeah. Yesterday, you all put on a river rafting slash vintner dinner mm -hmm. in Stanley, yeah. Idaho. I had never been to Stanley. I've, oh. I've, I've been to the Wood River Valley probably a dozen times now, yeah. but had never been to Stanley. It is spectacular. Yeah. As everybody had told me, <laughs> and turns out they were right. Yeah. Um, and so we had a remarkable day. Um, my partner and I, we went out and we were, we, we were rafting and it was pretty fun. I, I didn't know. I was like, is this just going to be like a right. little chill float? <laughs> you know, we hit a couple sections of class three rapids, yeah. so nothing too crazy, but yeah. you know, you but fun. kept, kept yeah. it a little spicy and, um, it was a remarkable day. It was pretty, it was the, it was a moody sky. Mm -hmm. We were getting a little bit of rain and it was just created this incredibly dramatic uh, kind of natural experience. Um, and to this whole back to maybe our kind of first topic, which mm -hmm. was this question of art in the outdoors. We saw this in absolutely real time yesterday. Um, there is a musician, Steve mm -hmm. Poltz yeah. was out. And after we had been rafting for about an hour and a half, maybe we pulled off to the side mm -hmm. and Steve had his guitar and just started playing some songs. And in fact, started just making up songs <laughs> and verses about the last hour and a half oh, on the river That's great. and the birds we were seeing and some of the things that the guide was teaching him about the river and the area. Mm -hmm. And he he, he's wonderful, by the way. Yeah. I mean, Steve, it, it, it really, that part was just really fun and lovely. And we got, we were doing sort of group sing-alongs and stuff is like, I haven't done this in, I don't know how many years. Yeah. Um, and so we get off the Salmon River and then we go have this lovely dinner at Sunbeam Cafe. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was introduced to a new winemaker and uh, a, a new winery to me, 32 Wins. Yeah. And wonderful. Sherry's Sherry's wonderful. And so there's this opportunity to get introduced to the people doing it, making it. Um, and so she was lovely. And uh, 
And then Steve started playing again, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of during dinner and after dinner. And it was super moving. Yeah. We went from having this really fun and kind of hilarious time on the side of the river uh, to a really profound experience. And, And hearing Steve talk about what it means for him to be in this place and to talk about some of the background of some of the songs uh, that he has written. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was sort of a real time expression of, I think, some of the things that we're talking about yeah. in this conversation and why these things matter. Yeah. Um, if I just had gone to Stanley to be on the river, that would have been wonderful. Right. But it would have been absolutely half of the experience when you pair that with art. Totally. I feel like artists, artists help us see the world more fully and, and differently than we would otherwise. And that, that sounds like the experience that you had, which is so magical. And, and also what we really hoped would come from that. This is a brand new event for us. And I don't think anybody knew how, how it would go. And I'm just so happy. Everybody I know who participated thought it was just an extraordinary um, evening. So um, yeah. And I love that art was able to be part of it yeah. in a really important and, and profound way. Yeah. As you describe, it's great. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's what we try to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, to me, that's the remarkable thing. I, it's easier for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. The museum of art, they focus on visual art, mm-hmm. but the scope of mediums, including yeah. Yeah. live music, yeah. which is what was part of it yesterday. Yeah. That scope is wild. Yeah. And um, this event, the Sun Valley Wine Auction, um, that that's producing funding that allows so many of these different things to be happening. It's yeah. it's really something yeah. else. We... Um, you know, I my, my job really obviously is focused on visual art, but we it's all hands on deck anytime we do a big event. And um, Christine Bertal, our our um, director of public programs, she she programs all of our music, and she was given the opportunity to bring this group called Mexico en el Corazón, Mexico from the heart, um, or the heart in the heart of Mexico. Um, to perform in the Valley in early June. And it's this incredible, it's like 40 people on stage at sometimes mariachi, um, folkloric dance, all from different regions in Mexico. They kind of take you through the map of States in Mexico. And it's organized by this, this group called Naima, the North American Institute of Mexican, uh, something. And (laughs) they perform for free. Their mission is to provide free tickets um, to all of their events. So it's, it, but you know, there are a lot of costs associated with obviously. And Sun Valley company was a great partner in this. They gave housing and food and, um, but you know, the wine auction goes to fund events like this. And we held it in the pavilion on a cold sort of drizzly night on a Monday before school got out. And we weren't sure like how many people are really going to show up for this. 
1,200 people can sit in the pavilion, and we filled the place with um, lots of people of Mexican descent who knew the words to so many of the songs mm. and were singing along, and um, their kids had been participants in our dance classes, and it was just this incredible moment of community, of the Anglo community and the Latinx community coming together in this full huge group of people with all these fabulous dancers and musicians. Um, and it really, it was one of those moments that I think everybody walked out of that pavilion feeling transformed in some way and, or, or, you know, just moved, I guess, maybe more than anything, but also with, with a greater sense of understanding of each other's where it, everybody in that place was coming from. And, and just, it was just, it was, yeah, it was spectacular. I was so glad that we were able to do that. So, hmm. yeah. So with all that said, maybe you can say a bit more specifically about what the wine auction actually is funding. We've spoken about this a bit, but perhaps a bit more on this. That is a really good question. So we raise about 40% of our annual budget at the wine auction. Hmm. And that money goes to um, a number of different programs. All the money goes to fund education in one form or another. So we have a scholarship program that is we're really proud of. It offers opportunities to high school students, college students, and educators to advance their study in any aspect of the arts or humanities. Um, so for instance, we fund lots of dancers who want to do summer dance programs or musicians who want to go to a summer jazz camp. Um, kids who have really dedicated themselves to their, their medium, whatever that is, but have kind of exhausted the resources in the valley and are ready to, to step outside. We've sent kids to National Geographic photography camps and, um, to visual arts programs for, for college students and in New York. And it's really, you know, for kids who it's, this is a funny place, right? Because we have access, we're in a, a county of 20,000 people total. Um, we are two and a half hours from the closest big city. We are isolated in a lot of ways. And there's also a huge income disparity. We have people at the very top of the income bracket and then people at the very bottom. And so kids here do have access to kind of extraordinary cultural resources in the Valley, but at the same time, some of them reach a point where if they're studying something in depth, they've, they need to leave in order to push themselves a little bit further. So the scholarship program funds that. It gives teachers the opportunity to do all kinds of professional development that helps them you know, bring back to the classroom new skills and resources. Um, and then, you know, again, our, our education programs, our learning and engagement programs are really strong year-round programs. We run an after-school program that's very low cost um, for fourth and fifth graders and sixth and seventh graders. We run free, well, not free, very low cost um, Mexican folkloric dance classes that have been hugely successful and and a really wonderful new addition. We run teen workshops and adult um, studio classes in everything from painting to printmaking um, to knitting. Hmm. Um, and uh, we bring in speakers regularly. Our concerts are always priced as affordably as we possibly can. Hmm. And 
Um, and then, you know, we have this strong exhibition program and, and are regularly bringing artists to the Valley. So, so the, the money at the wine auction really goes into funding all of these programs and then making, making every ticketed event that we, we program as affordable as possible. Hmm. So it, it's, the wine auction allows us to do the work we do, and it it allows us to to hopefully serve everybody in the valley who wants to participate in our programs. Hmm. So, what's on the horizon for the Museum of Art? Yeah. So, um, my in my particular area of uh, visual arts, um, I think one of the things we've done really well at the museum is invite people to look at this place that we live through, through visual art in different ways. So we did a whole project last year about dams, for instance, and their impact on not just fish, but all kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, and on the impact of dams on indigenous knowledge and indigenous peoples, um, and on the environment overall and the interconnectedness of it. So I, I'm actually, um, working on a four exhibition series that's going to start in just about a year uh, about the idea of migrations, all different kinds of migrations, human, animal, plant um, ideas. And I was able to bring um, a group of curators here from all across the country to spend a couple of days in conversation thinking about different models for that. Hmm. So um, I brought a curator, the director of the Anchorage Museum, Julie Decker, a professor from Tufts, who's now at the National Gallery of Art as a Mellon Fellow, Adriana Zavala, hmm. Shusha Rodriguez from the Crystal Bridges Museum, and hmm. then Aaron Joyce from Phoenix, from Arizona State. And um, we just spent two days like hashing out ideas and names of artists who might be appropriate. We have like 200 artists that I am now looking at, um, but... The model we came up with is landscapes of migration and um, thinking about ideas of movement, mapping, mending, and um, memory. And and I think that's going to be both historical memory, but future memory, thinking about climate change and what migration might look like in the future. Hmm. Um, and I am very hopeful that each of the exhibitions will contain a, a, an element that focuses on the history of migrations kind of in this area, you know, which has such a rich indigenous history too, where migration was a way of life, but then people were put into forced migration. Yeah. So how do you, how do you um, consider those histories? And, uh, and what does the future look like? So, yeah, I'm very, I'm really excited about that project. Wow. I think it's going to be, um, a, a rich one. Yeah. Yeah. It sure seems like it. Thank you. Should I let you get back to it? Sure. To the, to the grind? <laughs> yeah. Or do you need to, do you need to continue to have? <laughs> well, just, we, uh, we could take another couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> the team, <laughs> the team's definitely yeah. going to hate me, but. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not essential today hmm. <laughs> until later. Well, Courtney, this is great. It's really fun. One, to get to know you and to hear how you're thinking about things and what you're thinking about next. But I very much appreciate your willingness to kind of explore this topic of the merging of these worlds, right? Yeah. Um, curating you. art, creating art in places of natural beauty and how that works and why it's a pretty good idea. And I, I hope we've given some people some things to 
think about and and perhaps just encourage visitation yeah. to these centers of art in various communities mm -hmm. and to encourage support uh, for art museums and the like um, everywhere in the world. Um, and but you brought up the example of how in Sun Valley, this all got kind of started in the first place. And I believe yeah. it was a broken leg. Yeah. Turns out uh, that happens yeah. uh, to many of us. And we have injuries that can take us out. We, we talk about this a lot on Blister, actually, how hard it is mm -hmm. for those of us who love skiing or snowboarding or mountain biking or trail running when we do have an injury and can't go mm -hmm. participate with our friends, with the community in those activities, it is really hard mm -hmm. for a lot of us. And getting into these centers of art, mm -hmm. that is a whole other community and an opportunity to stay engaged yeah. um, in our communities and for people traveling to a place yeah. who have a down day. They right. skied hard or they rode hard the day before. Yeah. They're pretty tired. They're recovering. Perfect opportunity yeah. to go explore and see some of the incredible people and institutions in a, in a given yeah, place. I totally agree. And it, it opens up new worlds too. Hmm. Yeah. So I am really grateful to have spent this time with you. Hmm. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed our hmm. conversation and and I feel like you've given me lots of things to think about as I move forward with my own exhibition work. So hmm. thank you. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks so much to Courtney for this conversation and to her and the entire team at the Sun Valley Museum of Art for the remarkable event that they just put on and the great work that they are doing year round. The next time you are in Ketchum, Idaho, you should be sure to stop by the Museum of Art. And the next time you are headed to your favorite mountain town, take a look at what might be happening in terms of art exhibits or what's going on in terms of musical performances and the rest. And let's support these local institutions that I think are doing really important work. All right, and with that, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.